podcasting world. Welcome back for another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. Saturday morning, getting our record on. It's about as early as we get. This is the earliest one we've ever done in the history of podcasts. I think we did one at like 8 a.m. one we? time. I think it was it was before work or something like that. One time. Maybe we did. You might have been in like a coma at that moment. I may have been. Um, That's probably my best, uh, my best work. You probably blacked it out. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably my best work. We got Pete back today. Pete is back, and we actually let him sit at the table this time. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the big boy table this time. <laughs> yeah, he fixed his hair, so we put him on camera. Yeah. So Pete's our uh, producer, sound guy. Um, he's been MIA building robots in Germany. Okay. But uh, yeah, spent some time in the Congo, um, and well, I'm back now too. So. <laughs> well, just Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Can't promise I won't go back and disappear for three weeks again. But uh, so he's here, sitting, hanging out with us. And uh, he, for those of you who don't know, he's a uh, engineer by trade. So. Um, pretty smart dude. So not medical, but also um, helps us a lot with the uh, sound quality and whatnot. So figured we can uh, have him at least throw his two cents in. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. nice to just sit in. So excited. So um, we had uh, an idea to kind of throw out like kind of a big hodgepodge of uh, MTM counseling points. It's definitely a hodgepodge, but it's quality it stuff. So, you know, we, we kind of wanted to touch on a lot of different subjects all at once, but MTM is becoming a big focus, especially like in retail and community type pharmacy settings. Mm -hmm. So this, this one is going to be geared a little bit more towards the pharmacist, but, um, yeah, the, the, I guess where it's used, hmm, it is kind of geared towards pharmacists, but you can still take the knowledge and apply it yeah. in all sorts of medical realms. Right? I mean, honestly, so much gold in this it's, episode. Yeah, we, are, we, we struck it today. <laughs> struck oil. Well, we'll see. We, we don't know what we're going to say. Well, it's actually kind of funny because I was telling Mike when I was on his rotation, so this is like, this is probably June of 2017, um, we did a lot of MTMs, medication therapy management stuff. Uh, and so he had, he was, you know, giving me all these high quality recommendations and stuff to look out for. And so I was like, you know, I got to write some of this stuff down. So I actually made a list and at the top, I just put Mike's MTM tips. And so when he said we were doing this episode, I went and dug through my old uh, binders and I found it. So I got it here with me. It was right on his refrigerator. <laughs> just sitting there right beside the wedding pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say in front of the wedding picture, but it's fine. I'm so, going to get uh, it like laminated and framed. You should. Probably should. Like I said, so much gold. All right, so um, we will. How do you want to start? You want to start with the questions from Facebook? Um, sure, just we can, pick we can on start some. with the questions from Facebook, and we can talk about what MTMs are just yeah, yeah, really, really quickly, and what they look like in different settings. So, um, in the retail settings, MTMs might look like. Uh, you know, your boss is kind of saying, hey, you need to log on to this program and these insurance companies are uh, wanting you to do these CMRs or these comprehensive medication reviews. So you need to call these patients and talk to them for a few minutes. And um, some pharmacists are like, okay, you know, no big deal. That's great. And some are kind of like, oh, you know, what do I even talk to them about? Um, it's not scary. It doesn't have to take an hour. It's actually probably shouldn't take too much more than 10 or 15 minutes max. Um, and we're going to kind of show you our ways of approaching it and going about it in the retail setting. In a different setting, like in a clinic, this might involve an attending saying, hey, uh, pharmacist, come in here and do a med rec with this patient and let's see how we can, you know, chop some things off or uh, help optimize therapy. And so when you're just looking straight at a medication list with minimal information about the patient, um, this is where some of these tips kind of come in handy instead of looking at a bunch of drugs. Uh, you might see one and another together and say, okay, well, maybe we can take this off or maybe we can do this lab or recommend this. And um, in a clinic, it's probably a lot easier to say, hey, this patient's not on a statin, doc, so let's put them on a statin. In the retail setting, it involves a little more like a phone call or something like that and, you know, or at least telling the patient to have this conversation with the doctor. And so that's the two settings that we're looking at. But um, for those who aren't pharmacists and are dealing with medication management as well, these are still... Uh, helpful things, I think. Yeah, and I believe that um, with Marixa, which I, I guess was just actually just bought out by Outcomes, so there's two main platforms that you could use for billing, um, Outcomes and Marixa, and now I think um, Outcomes bought out Marixa. But um, as of now, when Marixa was still kind of its separate thing, um, they would allow not just pharmacists to bill, but you could also bill as a um, you know a physician or a, I think an advanced practice nurse and some other um Healthcare professionals were also allowed to bill, so it wasn't just pharmacists. Um, but the uh, the big thing, like Cole said, I completely agree with, is that it doesn't have to take a long time. I think everyone has this mindset of like a CMR has to take forty five minutes, 
And it's just not the case, especially if you're not doing these face-to-face with a patient. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of instances where you have to do them over the phone and uh, nobody wants to sit on the phone with someone they've never met right. for 45 minutes. It's not going to happen. Um, but I feel like you can do, and I've, we've done <clears throat> thousands of CMRs. Um, I, you definitely can do a impactful, meaningful CMR in a matter of 10 or 15 minutes. You just have to really key in ahead of time on what you want to kind right. of go over with the patient. Cause you don't necessarily have to hit every single recommendation that you want to make. You might have to choose your top ones and start going through. And a lot of times the patient will kind of get tired and be like, okay, thank you very much. And they'll, yeah. you know, they'll want to get off, which is, you know, some people think that's intimidating, whatever. Don't worry about it. You know, it's your job. If you do have an opportunity to have them face to face and have like a half hour visit or something, then that's great. You're going to get to talk about a lot of things. But if it's over the phone and it has to be quick and dirty sometimes, then, um, yeah, sometimes you just have to have. Usually I'll look at their list and I'll say, OK, what have they filled here? Sometimes, you know, you're dealing with somebody who literally doesn't fill at your pharmacy. Um, but if they have filled here, then you can see what's already on their file and what they filled frequently. And um, unless you have you know, questions about it, maybe you don't have to really go through that stuff as in depth. Uh, but if you can find some meds that outcomes or Marixa has on there that they're not taking and you can say, hey, are you still taking this? And they say, no, you just chop it off and that's real easy. And then, you know, that's just two two minutes. And then the rest of it is is spent trying to hit some of these counseling points um, or recommendations that they could bring to their provider. Yeah. And I would definitely recommend if you are going to be doing CMRs frequently, um, coming up with your own like worksheet, you know, we like when Cole and I were doing these, we would basically have a, uh, a we made our own worksheet that we would fill out and just have several of them printed. And uh, because we were also doing them for for pharmacies that we were not actually in. So at one point we were um, covering about 80 different pharmacies um, for a particular chain. And so we were uh, sending, obviously, I, we're not in all those pharmacies. So we were sending the worksheet out to that pharmacy. And then the um, pharmacist, if we couldn't get them on the patient on the phone, the pharmacist at that site would then go over um, the CMR worksheet that we had filled out with the patient, answer everything, and we would bill it for them. Um, but uh, so the, the CMR worksheet, you can you know make however you want. There's some, there's some uh, available... Um, on that other people have made um, online, we maybe should make our own and put oh, it out yeah. there. There you go. We could do that. Then have a little uh, little watermark at the bottom. Yeah. TM. A uh, huge watermark. Core console. <laughs> just right in the middle of it. Right in the middle. It's super so every, inconvenient. It's a huge advertisement. Every time a pharmacy sends it away to another one, it's just big core yeah. console. No, right we there. did this for you guys. It's definitely not yeah, for us. It's not for us at all. But it's to um, help patients. Yeah, that's what we're about. No, but uh, we made throw something like that together. Yeah, that'd and, be cool. uh, put that on the website but um yeah so make your own cmr website that definitely helps helps uh, move things along but um yeah so i guess we can get um we'll get we got a lot of different we'll cover a bunch of different yeah we'll bounce back and forth you know clinical pearls and, and disease states and whatnot but um i got some some questions from um the medication management connect group on facebook um jessica i appreciate you reposting this for us but uh, some of them asked questions and so we're going to go through some of those and make sure we touch on on those uh, subjects but um, one of the first ones that came up was talking about Narcan and how to actually talk to patients about um, you know getting their loved ones or themselves Narcan if they're on opioids Um, and I think this definitely because of all the stigma around opioids and whatnot definitely um can be, I guess, an intimidating conversation until you kind of um, do it a few times. But, and this applies to not just patients that have Medicare or eligible for MTM, but this is really anybody mm-hmm. who's uh, taking opioids. Um, you know, and, and I know it has something to add to this too, but I think my my personal kind of um, way of doing things is, one, I, I look at other comorbidities that a person may have, like COPD, sleep apnea, things like that that put them at risk for respiratory depression um, on top of taking an opioid. And then I, I just kind of um, list it as a, as a statement from that angle instead of saying, like, oh, you're on a really high dose of pain medicine, so you could overdose. People automatically get defensive. If you talk to them about it for the actual um, risk that it is because of other comorbidities and, and not 
put them in a in a light of saying like, oh, we think you're abusing your medication or anything like that. Um, it becomes a lot easier to kind of discuss with them. Um, or, you know, if they're willing to talk with them and their spouse, if you happen to see a couple, you know, uh, again, the bringing it up in front, you know, if the spouse is okay with um, sitting in on the conversation, um, giving them all the facts about the risks and be like, it's not just people who abuse medication. It's it's people with all kinds of different um, comorbidities can be at risk for it. Yeah. And also people who have, you know, the cocktail. So you'll see opioids and benzos together all the time. You'll see opioids and benzos along with muscle relaxers all the time. All of those are going to increase risk for CNS depression. Um, I think that they even recommend they, they consider a somewhat high dose of overdose, high uh, risk of overdose, someone with a daily dose of over 15 morphine milligram equivalents a day. Uh, which, you know, most people have access, at least in pharmacies and doctor's offices, have access to um, PDMP or prescription drug monitoring programs where they can look that up. And a lot of times it calculates the MME score for you. Um, and so that if you're just wondering, then, you know, I mean, you see people in the 500s and stuff like that and mm-hmm. up to, I think, 999 is the highest. Uh, so, yeah, if it's o- over 50, especially where it's of 100 or more, then they could be considered high risk. Um, COPD, alcohol use, all that kind of stuff. Or if they just ask for it. Um, uh, I, in South Carolina, we, of course, have a state protocol where we can the pharmacist can prescribe and give uh, Narcan. And is that national now? Mm-hmm. Is that every state? I don't think I don't it's know, every state. I don't know if it's every state. I don't think it's every state. But if you're in a state who can do that, then if they ask, then you can just give it to them. Um, so those are the patients you're looking for. Um, sometimes you might be giving it to the patient. Sometimes you might be giving it to a caregiver or spouse or parent. Um, either way, someone other than them is going to have to be counseled on how to use the Narcan because if they have overdosed, then they're not going to be using it on themselves. Um, so you're telling somebody how to use it, but you would uh, generally, if in the instance that they find you out, um, or find the patient out, um, you'd want to check for a response by yelling or shaking them. If they're not going to wake up, then you're obviously going to go ahead and call 911 um, and give the naloxone, even if you're not sure um, that they did definitely overdose. But of course, if you are sure, then you're going to go ahead and give them naloxone in one nostril, one spray. Uh, there are other dosage forms, but the one that we give out is the, the nasal spray. Um, if there's not a reaction in about two to three minutes, if they don't wake up, then you can go ahead and give them the second dose. Generally, there are only two doses um, and wait for um, EMS to come. You can start giving uh, rescue breaths or chest compressions if you feel that that's warranted. Um, And if they're not responding and try to stay with them for at least three hours or until help arrives. Uh, But there's an arcane nasal spray. There's a multi-step nasal spray, an IM injection and an auto injector, which is FZO. but yeah, I think that Narcan's the most common. And I'm pretty sure that you don't have to prime it because that wastes the spray. Yeah. So and, and a lot of times it. they use the injectable, like the pre-filled syringes, and just attach an atomizer to the tip of it yeah. to turn it into a nasal spray. Yeah. So that's the ones we always had when I was in retail. I think we have those at the clinic too. Yeah, but. and it's definitely important to emphasize that you're not you're not giving this to a parent or a spouse because you think that the patient is a druggie or they're abusing drugs, just like Mike said. It's just that they're these are, you know, dangerous medications and this is something that's happening commonly and with other comorbidities and medications, it's just uh, important to have this safety net just in case. Yeah. You know, and, and if they're elderly. And if they do come in and they are you know, quote unquote, a druggie, you know, you may have patients that have loved ones that do abuse drugs or IV drugs or whatever it may be. If you have someone that comes in on, you know, that has knows someone on heroin, um, I think that it's a good idea to definitely be, be very professional about that and still walk them through it and not give any sort of, I think it's easier for the, again, the stigma to kind of take over and, um, you know, you get, you got to keep it very professional and, and those, those patients need to have, um, help as well. And then obviously you could always recommend counseling or opioid, um, use disorder treatment, things like that. But, you know, always making sure first and foremost, the patient's taken care of. Medicine before personal feelings. And there is the stigma out there that some people would be averse to um, the patient, especially if they abuse drugs, having Narcan because they think that that might encourage them to abuse more. Some people feel that way. Either way, just be aware that you might run into that when you're recommending it. Yeah, and that's not uh, necessarily backed up by any sort of data. It's not evidence-based, is it? Yeah. All right, so hopefully that's some some stuff on Narcan. But um, 
Um, somebody else asked uh, about HIV meds and just some basic counseling points. Um, that one's kind of hard just because there's so many different you know ones available. Kind of depends, doesn't it? Um, I think the big one with that is to before you even get on the phone with the patient, um, do a drug drug interaction screen. Make sure that the um, infectious disease doc or whoever's prescribing the HIV meds is aware of whatever else they're. Um, patient may be getting and uh, from other like maybe the primary care doctor and uh, you know look for specific things so like um, let's say you know if someone's still on like a tripla you know they may be one of the components of a tripla is a favorins um, which can cause you know almost like um, psychosis type symptoms in some patients really vivid nightmares things like that you know have, addressing some very specific symptoms um of a particular agent may be good um and then you know just kind of looking for for specifics like that but yeah. i think drug drug interactions is the big one acid suppressing drugs frequently even before you run a run a check you can they interact with a lot of antiviral medications mm. including a lot of hiv medications and hep c medications and hep c is a big one yeah. yeah um so that's something to be aware of and then you know everybody knows but just can't overemphasize the importance of um of adherence with HIV medications. Um, and now that they have a lot of one pill once a day, dosing mm-hmm. it is a lot easier than it used to be, but still good to emphasize. Absolutely. But, but yeah. as far as a telephone um, CMR goes or something like that, not too much more, yeah, you would say, no, unless I mean, there's something specific with a specific medication. Yeah, it's more going to be dealt with, you know, in clinic based on their viral load, CD4 count. Yeah. So there's not a whole lot you would probably need to address, but drug-drug yeah. interactions would be the big I don't really think, you, you know, I don't really think we would talk much about infections and looking out for that stuff. I feel like that'd be more their HIV provider. Yeah, I think with something that specific, hopefully their HIV, I mean, you can always bring it up, talking yeah. about opportunistic infections, ask them if they know what their CD4 count is, um, you know, and but usually they're going to be under the care of an infectious disease doc who would have all that covered with something you know, specifically like HIV. Or to say, do you have any specific questions about your HIV medications yeah. or your HIV in general? Absolutely. Or finding them uh, maybe some additional coverage if it's if they don't have like Ryan White funding or whatever the case may be, if they're actually going through their insurance, um, especially for commercial insurance, there's a lot of uh, all the, the main um, treatment options now are a lot of them are available through Gilead. And Gilead has great financial assistance programs set up. Um, so, you know, maybe helping them with the cost if that's become a burden. So absolutely. Um, the next one is asking about um, how to address the lack of statin use in patients with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that she has doctors who refuse to add a statin, saying my patient's cholesterol is too low as is. So this one's kind of fun. This one's interesting because what what else does does statin use in diabetes affect? It affects your five star rating. So there's a lot of pressure on. Um, there's a lot of pressure on retail pharmacies to get their patients on statins and get them adherent to statins uh, because that affects their reimbursements from Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, but there's not always a whole lot we can do about it except for, um, you know, contact their doctor's office. And most of the time you would probably just leave a voicemail or fax them or something like that. Um, but there are some persuasive techniques you can use if the doctor feels a certain way, like their LDL is too low, right? Yeah, I think, for, I mean, first and foremost, like we have data back. There's a reason why the insurance companies want the patient with diabetes and a statin, even if they don't have cholesterol uh, issues. So, you know, the CARDS trial is the first one that kind of comes to mind, and that was primary prevention in patients with diabetes. Um, they added in a torvastatin 10 milligrams and, uh, you know, showed that it improved outcomes, um, cardiovascular events. And so, you know, there's there's primary prevention data available in, in that patient population specifically. So that's part of it. Um, but there's also a lot more data that's come out recently, like with the uh, PCSK9 inhibitors. We have like the four-year trial that has showed, you know, this improved cardiovascular outcomes with um, adding a PCSK9 inhibitor to patients who were already taking a statin. Mm-hmm. And in those patients, the, the baseline LDL was around like 90, 92, somewhere around there. So, you know, it's one of those things that it's, uh, you know, what is too low for your LDL? So that was the baseline, and they got it down to an average of about 30, um, and they didn't see an increased risk of new-onset diabetes or neurocognitive events, which is what I think people get concerned about. Um, But they did see a significant um, difference as far as the risk of cardiovascular events. So, yeah, as far as we can tell, there isn't a too low um, they've, we, we, they've looked at, uh, pravastatin in elderly patients and, um, 
getting their LDL low and they haven't seen any increased risk. They did MM, MME scores and didn't see any increased risk there. Um, so you can you can let them know that diabetes in general puts them at a uh, significantly higher risk of cardiovascular events. The statin is going to decrease it. And um, at this point, we, we haven't seen anything that's too low. Uh, the new lipid guidelines, which we did a podcast on, uh, are recommending in patients with diabetes um, having an LDL less than 70. Uh, in general population, it's usually recommended less than 100. Um, and this is, you know, in the last few years since we didn't really have specific goals. And now they have like the extreme risk category where they'll recommend less than um, like 55. So the, the, there are guidelines that are recommending really low levels. Um, and, you know, we're not seeing any particular issues there. So I think you can make the recommendations. And if they're asking for a specific drug, um, we would usually prefer the high risk medication. I mean, the um, high intensity medications like atorvastatin, rosuvastatin. Um, we don't really prefer simvastatin. And I've got, you know, there's a couple of um, couple of trials that, that support that. But, yeah. Yeah, especially if, uh, you know, they've had some sort of event on top of diabetes. I mean, we have data um, showing that Atorva 80 80. is better than Prava 40. Um, TNT. Or or when you understand, that's different. Yeah, uh, Professor Progress. Jeez. Progress. Progress. Um, No, Profess, because I think Progress is, uh, look it up real quick so I can (laughs) say that correctly. Um, Jeez, I can't believe I just had a... This yeah, is T- what happened Saturday morning. TNT, TNT was 10 verse 80. TNT was 10 verse 80 in stable um, coronary. Yeah. Prava versus Atorva. You see this? This is how we improvise in real time. Profess was aspirin diapritamol yeah. versus clopidogrel in preventing stroke. It's, it's um, because it's like the Timmy 22 is the other part of it. Well, either way, there's a trial yeah. out there that, that, that shows it. <laughs> we'll find it eventually. That makes me so mad. <laughs> Can't, um, get, can't get them all in mind. Prove it. Jeez. Prove Progress it. is in Dapamide versus Prandipril. It had a P in there. Yeah, it did. Okay, sorry, guys. Prove it. Timmy22 is the Prava versus Atorva. I knew it was a real trial. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's definitely a lot of uh, data proving that statins can can help us, you know, especially if they've had some sort of event. So um, I think that, uh, and that's, that's a hard one, too, because... You know, if if you're not in the clinic with a doctor, convincing right. someone that you've never met before that they should prescribe a new drug. Being um, in the clinic is is much easier, but if you're calling them from a you know some uh, big chain pharmacy and saying, "Hey, you need to prescribe this," even though you don't want to, it's not always well received. So yeah. there's only so much you can do, but there is data to support it. And I mean, bringing up the star ratings too, I think is a good showing them that it could actually affect them financially too, based on the the data. Um, you know, it may get them thinking. They may not respond to it the first one, but may at least get them thinking about it. And you could always at least start the claim and leave it in there. And if the patient gets started on the statin, then and bill, you know, it. bill it. Bill it. <laughs> and uh, the other thing too would be talking to the patient specifically. Get the patient. Yeah. Get the patient excited about. Give, a statin. Yeah, give them the. Give in. In you can, um, and they'll say, "Well, I don't have high cholesterol," and then that's a a good opportunity to say, "Well, it's not necessarily about that. It's about risk, and you know, bring out the." Uh, the old ASCVD risk calculator and and let's plug in statin versus non-statin and see what their risk is. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And they might bring it up to the doctor themselves. Absolutely. So hope that helps a little bit. Um, the other one was duration of dual antiplatelet therapy beyond one year. So that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, that's basically the, the guidelines now. Um, are looking at patients that making it patient specific because um, you know there's so many other factors you have to kind of weigh into this the decision of the, whether or not to continue dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, they do recommend the newest guidelines um, from 2017 and uh, basically recommend that you should be um, looking at this from a patient specific standpoint and assessing bleed risk along with, you know, their history, um, and what other kind of, uh, conditions, comorbidities they may, they may also have. So if you are curious about it, there's an app that you can download that was actually made by the American College of Cardiology. Uh, it is called the DAPT risk calculator and it's, um, like a light blue with a white and blue pill on the front of it. And, um, Actually, now that I'm looking at it, it kind of looks like our, like the capsule with the pill in front of it. It kind of looks like our logo. (laughs) Did we rip them off? Minus the, uh, no, this is made after us. Ah, they Uh, they ripped ripped us us off. off. 
sharks at the we are just doing that all the time. College of Cardiology. Yeah, they are. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a calculator you can download. It's free. Um, you put in the patient's age, and then it'll have you select all that apply as far as our comorbidities. So they have diabetes, cigarette smoking in the last two years, a prior uh, prior myocardial infarction or PCI, history of congestive heart failure or left ventricular ejection fraction less than 30%, hypertension, renal insufficiency, peripheral arterial disease. Um, so if the patient has any of those, you click those boxes, and then you would also click that um, when, as far as their procedure goes, were they actually having AMI at presentation or was this like a scheduled thing? Um, you know, what kind of stent diameter, um, stenting of vein of graft, there's other things you can uh, apply there. And then it'll give you basically a, a risk of, um, you know, whether or not they should continue or what the risk of having a bleed or ischemic event would be if uh, they continue this this therapy. So similar to HasBled with AFib, it's just a mm-hmm. guide. It's just to give you, you know, a relative um, reference. And this might be more handy in a clinic setting. So if you're in a retail setting and say you're looking over a medication list and you see two, two antiplatelet therapies and you're like, huh, is this patient supposed to be on this? Maybe you look back at their history and it's been more than a year, um, you know, is is there too much that, that you can do because you don't know their history? You don't know when they had a stent placed or whatever they had. Um, but, you know, you can check and see, okay, is this the same doctor who's prescribing this? If so, then hopefully it's a cardiologist or it's just a primary care doc continuing therapy and they know what they're doing. If it's two separate docs, then maybe mention it to the patient and say, do they know that do your different doctors know you're on both of these? And maybe they say, well, last time I was in there, they didn't ask for my medication list, so I don't know. And they can just bring it up with their doctor and uh, maybe they take them off of one if they don't need it. Yeah, especially if they're taking aspirin on their own. Right, yeah, definitely if they're doing it they hear, they hear it's helpful for yeah. their heart and they start taking it. They're already on Plavix for something else. Yeah, so that's... Uh, Definitely going to be patient specific, but I would encourage you to download that app and kind of look through it. And then um, the 2017 um, is it was basically a summary of the European Society of Cardiology guidelines that the American Card- College of Cardiology republished, and uh, so it's available. So you can check that out for free. But they have like a list of their ten summary points. Um, so that's all the direct questions I think from Facebook. Cool. I, hope, I hope I'm not missing any, but. Um, I guess let's talk, uh, since diabetes, at least for in our neck of the woods, diabetes is very, very prevalent. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll talk a little bit about... Gotta love the South. Yeah, let's we'll talk about some diabetes. Um, you know, the first thing I always start off with, with patients with diabetes is, you know, looking at their regimen, obviously, but then, um, you know, I always start off the conversation with asking what their A1C is. Um the, you know, that based on their response to that is how I kind of mm-hmm. continue. Um, if you have, cause you have patients that are like, Oh, it's a 6.8 and they know exactly what that means. Their diabetes is super controlled and they, they, they're good. Um, you know, you can reinforce diet and lifestyle and things like that, but I wouldn't spend a ton of time, um, on the, the, the different medications and stuff. Other than maybe metformin, um, if they're on metformin, I would ask them about any kind of like neuropathy symptoms because the metformin um, can deplete your B12 levels um, or basically metformin depletes your intrinsic um, factor, which in the gut, so you're not able to absorb B12. And so these patients may start developing some signs of neuropathy and it may just be B12 induced. And so uh, they can, you know, take a B12 over the counter, whether it's even sublingual oral um, or shot if they have a prescription and um, kind of uh, get those levels back up and the symptoms may go away. And a lot of these patients are overweight and have GERD. And so they might be on PPIs. So mm-hmm. mix PPI with metformin, you're getting even less absorption of B12. So if they yeah. come complaining of neuropathy um, and, 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 you know, maybe they're on gabapentin, say, hey, why don't we try B12 and maybe you get off that gabapentin. Yep. And uh, the other thing too would be if the patient doesn't gives you kind of a you know a different response with the A1C, basically saying they don't. You can tell they don't understand what that means, or um, you know it's really uncontrolled. I always ask them, has anyone ever explained to you what A1C is? You know, we always throw that term around, but to someone who's not in the medical field, A1C doesn't necessarily mean anything. And so I always make sure that they've. Yeah, Pete, does that mean anything? It does mean nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We're we'll about to find out what it means. Yeah. So, you know, just it's something that's very simple. I always just, you know, explain to them that it's a, it's a three-month snapshot that's um, looking at 
all your blood sugar averages over that course of time. That way you don't have to stick yourself 24 times a day and then average those over three months. This gives us a big picture look as far as how your blood sugar is doing overall. And you'd be very surprised at how many people have never had that explained to them. And uh, you can, for those of you who are doing CMRs, things like that in person, you can get uh, like free um, handouts to give to people that that explain A1C and things like that from Mm NovoMedLink.com. It's a company from... uh, Called um, Novo Med or uh, um, from Novo Nordisk. Novo Nordisk. Is, uh, it's their like their healthcare professional website. And that's what I do with my diabetes education, and they're great. Yeah, um, we use them in the clinic too. And they'll send um, you boxes of free stuff. Yeah, they will. It's pretty awesome. You just tell them your healthcare professional will send you whatever you it's want. Like Amazon for free. <laughs> it's great. But um, yeah, the A one C is where I start, and then from there I kind of go into the medications. So. Um, the big one I would keep an eye out for is looking for patients, especially the Medicare patients, if they are on sulfonylureas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the current guidelines, we typically save sulfonylureas for patients who can't afford other medications. Mm-hmm. If they have Medicare Part D and you're doing a CMR on that patient, they most likely can get a different medication that is uh, is going to provide much better outcomes. Especially for them. if they're not on metformin, right? Let's switch those things up. So, you know, get, like I'm a big fan of trying to find something instead of the sulfonylurea. Those are like fifth line now. And as long as they're on it, just make sure that you, you know, recommend that they take it with food because they're so high risk for hypoglycemia. Um, and, you know, your star rating is also affected by how many high risk uh, meds you have in elderly patients. Is, are those considered high risk medications or is it more like... Ambient and um, I think so. Funny areas are something that I think it's anything are considered on the, like suboptimal. I think it's like anything on the beers, and I think those might be there. So you know, if you can switch it up to something better, then there you go. Helps yeah. you too. And um, you know, you can always do. Uh, we've mentioned this app a few times, but it's called Formulary, and you can run a basically like a test claim on the pay against the patient's specific insurance, including different Medicare plans, and see whether or not the medication is is covered or. Um, see whether it's uh, needs a PA or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, and if you have a person that basically doesn't want to do a, um, like an injectable, if they're very, and I see this almost every day, they, they refuse an injectable. One thing I do is I actually carry a pen needle around with me when I'm seeing patients and I actually open it up and show them how small the needle is. And, um, I think that a lot of patients said no from like family members or grandparents or whatever that may have had diabetes. They they remember the needles being a much different thing. So showing them how much better the technology is now um, can definitely help. And, uh, you know, or explaining the once weekly options for GLP-1s. Usually the insurance companies will cover either Trulicity or Ozempic, one of the two. Stay away from Modurion. It's garbage. <laughs> and, uh you know, I think that that's um, another good option for patients. And then, you know, especially if their A1C is not controlled. Yeah, I've seen it in patient charts where it's like, you know, star, 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 a patient refuses injection, star, star, star. And I mean, you can, I, from what I've seen, at least 50% of the time, you can talk them into an injection yeah. and it's no big deal. And probably 75% or more, you can talk them into an injection. Uh, but if you see on their profile, they don't have metformin and maybe they have insulin on, or they have something else, then you can say, hey, have you ever tried metformin? You might get no, you might get yes, had really bad diarrhea. You say, well, hey, you know, did they did they try extended release? Um, were you taking it with a big meal? They could, did they try cutting back your dose and titrating slowly? There's a lot of stuff you can do um, and potentially recommend to the doctor, potentially have the patient readdress it because uh, metformin is great first-line option no yeah. matter what you're on. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, so just kind of looking at the big picture outcomes for diabetes is the thing I would yeah. focus on. Other little things like, um, you know, the um, hypoglycemia, counseling yes. on that. If they have um, a beta blocker on, you can um, counsel on it blocking the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia except for sweating because it's going to keep your heart rate down. Um, so, you know, if, if you notice that you're, the patient is sweating um, and they might be feeling funny otherwise, maybe check your blood sugar, see if it's under 70 and treat per that yeah there's a lot of good handouts you can give patients on that as well to like just so they know how to treat this you know look for the signs and symptoms and also treat hypoglycemia if they're on a statin you can recommend taking it at night if they're not um get better results that way stuff like that yeah there's um as far as uh like blood pressure meds 
obviously assessing whether or not, especially patients that are on multiple blood pressure meds, assessing whether they're on appropriate therapy is, is definitely good. Um, looking for little things like, let's say they're on amlodipine and um, lisinopril, then, you know, suggesting, asking them how they take it currently and then maybe suggesting to take the amlodipine in the morning, lisinopril at night. Um, lisinopril, you know, at night we have data like with um, HOPE and MicroHOPE showing, you know, they, the outcomes um, from an ACE inhibitor and uh, they were also dosed, the ramipril in that study was dosed at night. Um, MAPEC, if a patient's on multiple medications, has shown that switching one of those to nighttime can uh, improve outcomes, basically because you don't know if the person is considered a, a dipper, like a normal circadian rhythm, or a non-dipper. And uh, so you kind of cover all your bases that way. And um, the amlodipine is going to have a long half-life, like 30 to 50 hours. So you can treat that in the morning. It's going to cover them all day. And the lisinopril will cover them at night if they do drop. Um, splitting the dose of lisinopril is always an option. maybe doing it twice a day is yeah. kind of a more recent recommendation that people have been doing. 20 milligrams twice a day versus 40 once a day can lower blood pressure a little bit more. We don't know that it improves outcomes necessarily, but it does lower blood pressure, so we think it may improve outcomes. Might keep know. off one extra med that, that you, you might not need. Yeah. Um, and then uh, thiazide direct, one of the new things with the, the guidelines is if a patient is on CCB, ACE, or ARB, and then a thiazide diuretic, and they're still not controlled, one of the first things to, to do is, because most likely they're on hydrochlorothiazide, mm-hmm. switch to either uh, chlorothaladone or endapamide, because those are the evidence-based chlorothiazide diuretics, and they do um, they do give better uh, blood pressure lowering as well. I've been seeing more endapamide the last few weeks. Have you? Yeah. Good. It's good. It's good. Yeah, if I had to order it, didn't have any stock. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, you know... <laughs> prescriptions for it and uh and Zapamide, i think is on like some of the like one the four dollar list and things like that it's pretty cheap you know it's not too bad um and then the fourth line agent if you do need one um kind of keeping in mind you'll see a lot of places that'll just prescribe beta blockers at that point mm-hmm. um we have a study called pathway two and we've probably talked about this a couple times in the podcast but basically you know they've took the patients who needed a fourth line agent gave them either spironolactone doxazosin or a uh, bisoprolol and showed that uh, the spironolactone was significantly better than the other two options so before you start alpha blockers and beta blockers um, probably better to do the aldosterone antagonist and especially if they have diabetes and um, you know one if they don't have an indication for a beta blocker if you can yeah. get that off then you know lower risk hypoglycemia yeah especially if they're on insulin uh, because hypoglycemia is what uh, kills people. Hyper doesn't necessarily acutely, so not acutely, just over time. And uh, yeah, especially with the look, watch for carvedilol and labetalol. Also, the, the alpha beta blockers; those are the ones that are really going to be bad as far as covering up signs and symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just make sure pay, you definitely go over uh, having a meter with them and and make sure patients are taking precautions. Ask them if they're monitoring at home. Um, and if not, you know, recommend a monitor, recommend what you have in the pharmacy. Uh, cause you know, the, the newer guidelines are, are saying, yeah, we want to monitor in the doctor's office, but make sure they're monitoring at home because white coat hypertension is a thing. And, um, you know, if it's too high in the office and they're treating that it might be going low at home. Yep. Um, what else we could do? Blood pressure uh, wise, uh, heart failure stuff. So that's pretty common. If you see patients on heart failure medication, um, just talk, especially if they're on Lasix, talk to them about their daily weights. Uh, if they have more than a three pound weight gain in 24 hours ish, or more than a five pound weight gain in a week, um, you know, recommend contacting their doctor or, um, if they have, you know, sometimes the cardiologists have other recommendations based on, you know, if they might say five pounds in 24 hours or whatever, just if they have other, um, instructions, but if not, you can, that's pretty general. Yeah. Also, um, Checking, uh, you know, a lot of these disease states, you'll also see depression as a very um, common thing. And uh, if you see any sort of indication for depression, you know, if they're on even just one medication, it's low dose, um, giving them a copy of one of the rating scales. So I always use PHQ-9 um, or even PHQ-2. You can do that over the phone. Yeah, exactly. Um, giving them a copy of it, even if they're on, if, especially if they're, if they're seeing a primary care doc, you know, give them a copy of PHQ nine, tell them to fill it out on, you know, whenever they have some free time and bring it with them to their next appointment. Mm-hmm. It may, um, you know, help the doc out by, if you know, hopefully they've gotten a, a baseline established and then kind of see whether or not they need to switch the medication or augment based on the patient's 
signs and symptoms of depression. Yeah. Or even, you know, how's your mood been lately? Yeah. Sometimes you'll get, you can just tell by their initial answer whether you should follow up on it or sometimes they're like, oh, I'm great. You know, I don't let this get me down, blah, blah, blah. I have these, these, and these. And, you know, that's good. Yeah. Um, COPD is another one you probably see that, um, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do other than just having them um, check to see how often they're using their mm-hmm. rescue inhaler, see how many exacerbations they may maybe have had, um, making sure they're taking their medication as directed. Mm-hmm. But the other thing you can do is you can give them like uh, the questionnaires to take with them to their pulmonologist or whoever's treating their COPD. Um, you can give them things like the COPD assessment test, the CAT, um, and have them fill that out again and kind of take it with them. And that kind of can provide some insight onto which you know, whether they need to switch medication or add on another agent. Yeah, I I think one of the biggest things, you know, like you said, is how often are they using their rescue and do do they understand the difference between the controller and the rescue? If you see that they're filling their pro-air every every month, but they're not adherent to their Anoro or whatever it is, um, then say, you know, you're supposed to be using this every day and you only save the pro-air for when you need it. And if you're needing it this often, then you might need to talk to your doctor about um, stepping up therapy. Yeah. And if they aren't taking their controller of why, you know, if it's a Nora, let's say that they're on, maybe that's the one that's not controlled or not not um, covered rather uh, under their insurance. So, you know, finding them an alternative. So, you know, looking for one of the other Lava Llama um, combos and seeing if you can switch it to, you know, the... Um, Adverse generic now. Adverse generic now. Um, and if the let's say the patient is is needing to step up therapy and you want to make a recommendation and you know they're going to their pulmonologist for an upcoming appointment, let's say they're on something like teotropium by itself, um, you've kind of fill out their CAT score and you realize that they would be a candidate for stepping up in therapy. We know that patients, especially if they've had an exacerbation, would do better with a LABA-LAMA combo than a LABA-ICS. And if they're already on something like teotropium, um, you could look at just adding on Oladaterol, um, which comes as a combo product. Um, was it Stravarity? I think is the brand name for that. Um, you can you know do that, and that's that step up instead of switching to something like um, Brio or Advair or something has actually been shown to uh, give some improvement in COPD patients. So um, some of this sounds kind of involved with you know filling out CAT scores and blah blah blah. But a lot of this, you're going to look at their med list. You're going to identify one or two of these things that you can bring up, and then. Um, make that your, your focus and see if you can hit a couple of those things during the 10 or 15 minutes. And if you can, great. If you can do more, great. And if not, you just do what you can. Yeah. And if it seems too involved, then just please stop complaining. Yeah, just don't complain. <laughs> you guys asked for this. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going over like all, all, all of it. So you're not getting, there's not, there, there might be one patient that needs all of this counseling and then you might need more in 10 or 15 minutes. But for the most part, it's just a couple of things. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, maybe if you have an anemic patient that's, um, you know, taking iron, making sure they're, you know, taking the right amount, um, making sure they're getting follow-up uh, follow uh, appointments to have lab work done, um, making sure that if you have a patient that needs calcium, um, if they're on, like, things like PPIs because you need an acidic environment to, to absorb calcium, making sure you having them switch to calcium citrate instead of calcium carbonate because that calcium citrate will still be absorbed even if they're mm-hmm. taking a PPI or H2 blocker. Uh, so, you know, things like that, that just really simple, quick fixes that you can make and identify and just kind of have these things in the back of your mind so that, and it takes practice and, you know, you guys takes you kind of keeping up with information and yeah. reviewing and looking through more information and continuing to learn yourself so that these kind of are just like ready to go in the back of your head when, right. Um, whenever you're looking through a chart, I mean, these things should be kind of popping out at you right away before you even ask the patient and then you know right where to go. So the more your knowledge kind of gets centered, then the the easier these CMRs become. And speaking of how to take medication, so PPIs, um, we've mm, talked about in other podcasts, one. but you might see uh, patients with a PPI twice a day. More than likely, that's probably not necessary. They are probably just not taking it like they should. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll see in the directions, take 30 minutes before breakfast or take 30 minutes before a meal. That's fine. You could say take 30 minutes before a significant meal. That's okay too. Uh, But really, they should be taking it 30 minutes to an hour before the biggest meal of the day. Um, The the proton pump inhibitors are um, inhibiting the proton pumps, the acid-secreting pumps on the parietal cells. Uh, When a patient eats... Um, parietal cells express those. So the more they eat, the more that are expressed and the more the proton pump inhibitors are able to block. Um, So it's going to be more effective, especially early on if it's before a bigger meal. 
and if they're getting control that way because they ppis can essentially create complete cessation of those acid secreting pumps um so it's in you know there's issues that go along with that long term and that sort of thing refer to our GERD podcast for that um <laughs> but as, as far as you know just a nice quick counseling point you can give somebody um i think that's pretty helpful yeah absolutely and it's really surprising how many people take their ppis wrong yeah most and if you have someone that literally cannot take it appropriately, they just whether or not it's a work schedule thing or whatever it may be, um, switch them to Dexalon. Yeah. So that's that's that way. Dexalon. Dexalon. Yeah. yeah. Dexalon doesn't have a uh, um, doesn't have an indicator. Or doesn't have a need to be taken thirty minutes to an hour before a meal. So you can all kind of absorb and shut those um, proton pump inhibitors or uh, proton pumps off, regardless um, of the food or not. So. And other dosing recommendations, we've got thyroid medications all over the place. So levothyroxine, usually 30 minutes before anything else um, in the morning is best um, on an empty stomach. And hopefully, I mean, you know, whether they're taking it right or not, especially if they've been on it for a while, their dose has probably been adjusted for that. But still taking it appropriately for the long term is better. Um, but then bisphosphonate dosing as well, um, depending on the one sitting up and um, drinking as much as they need to drink and all that kind of stuff for whichever one they're on um, is a good recommendation just to make sure they're getting as much as they can out of their bisphosphonate. Yep. Always checking herbals. Yep, always asking about OTC and herbals, man. Lots of drug-drug interactions. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I think we've talked about those in podcasts before too. Um, if not, talk about everything. There's in posts our on podcast. Instagram you can check out, <laughs> but uh, looking and using Lexicomp or Natural Medicines database um, to kind of evaluate drug drug interactions if the person is taking an herbal. Um, but always important. Um, other OTCs, NSAIDs. You know, have they had a heart attack? Do they have diabetes? Um, do they have kidney failure? Like, eh, let's get that ibuprofen off. You know, if your liver's okay, then try Tylenol. And well, Tylenol doesn't work for me. Well, switch to naproxen. Right. <laughs> Do something different. Um, and yeah, other OTC stuff. So they might be um, using a PPI and they're on an antiviral and their um, HIV doctor doesn't know that they yeah. are taking over-the-counter PPI, stuff like that. Uh, or um, interactions with maybe a multivitamin and a thyroid medication or other little things like that. You'll catch it when you ask them. Yeah, but, they start know. antibiotic, they're on doxy or... Yeah. Levofloxacin or something, the multi multivalent cation um, interactions. Yep. And the antibiotics don't get absorbed. Yep. Things like that. Um, what else? If you see a patient who's on a nitrate who has filled um, a PD5 in the past, Cialis <laughs> or Fiagra, uh, hopefully somebody's told them already, but just high five them and tell them to keep <laughs> just keep up the good work. Uh, no. So so never take them together, ideally not within the same day, um, but at least 12 hours apart i think it's like minimum so yeah. i would just i think it depends on the pd5 yeah, yeah it depends so I, I would i would just emphasize that just don't even take those anywhere close together yeah what else we got um simvastatin we're just we're just ad-libbing we're, right we're now just, it's all the, all the <laughs> just little counseling points that come up simvastatin and amlodipine together um a lot of times your computer system might catch this one but if it's 20 milligrams or less of simvastatin it's generally okay mm-hmm. and i think you know, of course less than 10 milligrams of amlodipine um the reason for that is we're not really recommending 80 milligrams of simvastatin anymore per search trial um more adverse events similar outcomes or no better outcomes yeah. um if the patient has been on simvastatin for 12 months simvastatin 80 for 12 months fda says it's okay to leave them on simvastatin 80 um, but we really wouldn't want amlodipine on with that uh, it's a three four inhibitor three four choose up simvastatin um and if you're inhibiting it then just going to get high levels area into the curve (laughs) greatly increases yep high risk from um myopathies rhabdo that kind of thing yeah all of a sudden 20 or 40 milligrams turns into a lot more than we we thought so that's why 20 is pretty much the maximum and you know maybe it turns into 40 but okay yeah so or just switch them to a better statin and call it yes, a day. Yes, or just get them off of that and go to Atorva or Resuva, which doesn't have that interaction yeah. as significantly. Cool. Anything else we got you can think of? Um, mucinex dosing. Yeah, um, the, and this is kind of all over the place, but um, one of the ones that I've seen a lot is um, when, because the guafenicin, you, know, you see 100 milligrams of guafenicin, you're just not doing much. Um, I've seen some, some different studies looking at different doses, but, 
Um, one that I that I kind of think about is I've heard 2,400 milligrams seems to be effective. So if you're using the extended release like like Mucinex version, guaifenesin, um, it comes as a 1,200 milligram tablet that's every 12 hours, which gets you to your 2,400 milligram dose. Um, or uh, there's also the immediate release guaifenesin tablets that are like available as 400 milligrams, and, um, and you can do two of those every eight hours and get to that dose. Um, I've seen some small studies that have looked at uh, less dosing than that, but yeah, definitely uh, 100 milligrams of Robitussin is not doing it for you. No. It's a waste of, Placebo. waste of time. Cool. Well. So do you guys feel like you got some good information? <laughs> so after, uh, after all that, hopefully the uh, CMRs get a little easier for yeah. you. Just look for a couple of those things and... Um, Mike's trying the sound effects, but I guess they're not working today. Uh, but yeah, just look for, go through the medication list super quick. You're going to have 400 million things going on if you're a retail pharmacist at the same time. But just look over real quick, um, check their meds with them for two minutes, and you know, take another five or ten and try to hit a couple of counseling points if you're able to. Uh, and then bang, you just got yourself. You know, if, if you can hit a couple of these and change some sort of behavior and emphasize something that's important, I feel like that's a successful CMR. And, you know, they might get another one next year and you're able to hit something else. And maybe the patient knows all these things and they didn't need it anyway. And great, that patient's, that patient's good to go. But that doesn't happen all that often. And if nothing else, if you don't see any other value at this, I will say, and I've preached this a hundred times, Retail pharmacy is changing, and it will not be there forever. And so this is a good opportunity to get yourself practice in more of a clinical role, um, kind of going through these things, doing CMRs very quickly, identifying these different trends. And so, you know, if nothing else, know that it's, it's beneficial for you as a healthcare professional and in, in your growth in your career eventually down the road. Yes. So nothing, nothing, uh, time wasting about it um it's definitely important and you can you can learn a lot from the more you kind of keep diving into this this material yep i agree but uh yeah so uh, thanks for the questions from the facebook group and uh we'll hope you hope you guys found this somewhat valuable but uh thank you all for listening if you do like the podcast definitely leave us a comment um, or rating, subscribe. It helps us out greatly. Um, if you have any questions, the emails will be in the show notes. Um, and then also uh, reach out to us on any of the social media platforms at coreconsultrx, and uh, we will get back to you as quick as we can. Um, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. See ya.